Well, good morning, church. We've been going through a series this morning entitled Living as Suffering Saints for God's Promised Glory. Do you remember the time when Peter watched as the Lord passed him by and called Peter and his brother? Come, he said, follow me. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. For three years, Peter watched the Lord teach and preach in a city and in synagogues, bold as a lion and gentle as a dove. Jesus never flinched during his time of ministry, even though his brothers and sisters were embarrassed of him at some points. He never retreated in shame, and Peter watched all of this. There were points where the disciples and Peter were perhaps nervous as they watched the Pharisees send out spies to entrap him. They watched in awe as Jesus disputed these high-profile teachers of the law and silenced them. And so Jesus is no ordinary man. He healed the sick everywhere he went. He cast out the demons, which strangely overpowered people and alienated them from their families. And Jesus cast them out with a word and restored them to their right minds. And so this was no ordinary man. And I'm sure that Peter thought the same thing. After all, he said, Lord, where where would we go? You have the words of eternal life and have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Three years. Just three years. And in those three years, Jesus said to both Peter and the disciples, I will build my church. Not a corporation. Not Rome. I will build my church. He also said to Peter, Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Tend my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Church, I'm calling you this morning to think on the life of the Lord Jesus. He's the foundation of this text that I am about to go into. The model that we have in front of our eyes This morning is the same model that Peter had in front of his eyes. And just as Peter saw the Lord and modeled his life after the Lord, so Peter directs his hearers to do the same thing. Peter never asked his readers to do what both he and Jesus had never done. And all I want to do this morning, Palm Vista, is to direct your attention to him. So before we continue, let's pray. Because I can't do this. I can't preach to you guys on my own strength. It's in Christ's strength that I frankly can do this. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. The privilege of being with your church. By the blood of your Son, you've purchased us 
ransomed us as we were enslaved to sin and Satan. I thank you, Father, for your goodness. And I thank you for your patience with us. This morning, Father, I can't pray. I can't preach unless you come. And I pray that all the words that I say that would benefit your church this morning would stick and everything else would just fall away. I pray that our eyes would be fixed on Jesus, including my own. In Jesus' name, amen. So the assumption that this letter and my sermon is based on is that Jesus is alive. He's physically alive right now, right now as I speak. In fact, I told that to a coworker the other day, that I literally believe that Jesus is physically alive right now. This is not a fancy twist on helpful living. This is not science fiction. Jesus was publicly humiliated and executed as an enemy of the state for blasphemy. He wasn't then inducted into a hall of fame of religions so that we can just pat ourselves on the back and talk about a nice moralistic teaching this morning. Peter saw him. He saw him with his eyeballs. He saw him. And 500 other people saw him as well. And so we believe that today, this morning, that Jesus is alive. He is alive, church. He's alive and he will return for all who long for his appearing. Every single person that longs to see Jesus return, he will come back physically. I've entitled the, the sermon, Life Together, and I'm going to hold up a book to you by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you guys don't have this book, I would recommend that you get it, because it's a good read, and sometimes our souls need to be encouraged. But Life Together is a book written by a German pastor who was executed under Hitler's regime. And he wrote that book to encourage the church not to reinvent the wheel, but to encourage the church on how we ought to live as believers. And so our lives together are to be counter-cultural. Some of you may hear that and say, what's so counter-cultural about being a stay-at-home mom? Or showing up to my job on time? Or being a father? Answer, the one around whom your life revolves around is the difference. Jesus is the difference between the one who stays at home and watches her children and the one who doesn't trust Jesus and stays at home and watches their children. Jesus is the difference. And what Jesus and Peter are calling us today to is radically different from the Disneyland of Christianity. True Christianity should not look like another Jesus Christ social club where people get together to change the world 
It's not a group of people getting together to simply have a good time or snap their fingers the way good poetry hearers do. The call to life together as believers is a life that radically rallies around a living Savior. And that's why you'll find in a church, especially if you look around, that no one's the same. There's poor people, and there's rich people, and there's Asian, and there's black, and there's white, and there's Hispanic. There's a different group of people, and there's a wide array of people in the Lord's church. And so with that introduction, and this call to live life together, let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. And what I've done is I've broken up this text into three points. The first is the call to live watchfully, which is verse 7. The second is the call to serve fervently. And the last is a call to live worshipfully. Verse 7, the call to live watchfully. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Already Peter has talked about Jesus as the model for our suffering. Jesus suffered perfectly, without sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. What that means is that there was a reason for Jesus' life. He lived for a reason. The suffering that Jesus underwent was a suffering that incriminated him for sinners like us. He was innocent so that sinners who by nature do not desire God and by their very nature resist Him and look away from Him could be declared not guilty before the throne of God. That doesn't mean that you, by being a sinner, that doesn't mean that you just do bad things. That means that your very disposition is contrary to God. And Peter reiterates that over and over again. We don't wake up in the mornings and say, I just want to see the Lord and I just can't wait to read my Bible. People who tell you that they do that by default are weird. Because that doesn't happen. If they tell you that they do that every single day, that's strange. Peter writes to sinners, including us, who constantly need Jesus. And here in verse 7, Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. So what does he mean by saying that? The end of all things is at hand. If you remember the sermon that Corey preached, God saved the people, eight people, through a flood. When Peter says that the end of all things is at hand, this comes on the heels of that salvation through judgment. So it was good for Noah. It was good for his family. It was good for those eight people. It was not good for everyone else. Peter has a definitive end in mind. It's not reincarnation where you live cycles and cycles and cycles and you get born again into this world that you become a cow or you become anything else. Peter has a definitive mind and end in view. 
It doesn't mean that Peter's going to talk about the end times or he's thinking in terms of charts and charting out when Jesus will return. The end times began when Jesus said, it is finished, done at the cross. His work was accomplished at the cross and inaugurated the end times. The period between that time and the time that Jesus will return are the end times. It's not 2012, obviously. And so the reason why Jesus came to die was to purchase people out of the slave market of sin and Satan. There's a song in our culture that says that we can make it through Judgment Day. And I fear and tremble when I hear those words. There is not one person that can make it through Judgment Day. I've had people tell me that Don't worry, I will defend myself before God. I don't need Jesus, thank you very much. That is horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. The end of all things is at hand. Jesus will return. And so Peter says, therefore, as a result of the pending return of Jesus, be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. There has never been a time in the history of the church where the church was not called to be vigilant, be sober, be watchful and discerning of the things that are going on around the church. The church has always been called to be vigilant. Watch through the mirage and the deception and the lies that this world and Satan will bring. In other words, don't spend your time in this life being drunk and intoxicated with the ideologies and the mindsets that this world will give you. If you don't have an opinion, the world will give it to you. How many times did Jesus say, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem to be delivered into the hands of the high priests and scribes? He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Did he not warn them to not be deceived when people would claim to be the Messiah? What he wanted, or what we see, is a Savior whose eyes are fixed to the cross. Nowhere else. I'm going to the cross, and I will die. A drunk man doesn't say that. A man who is Not self-controlled does not say that. Jesus was always self-controlled, sober-minded, always watchful in prayer. The the world will always over-promise and under-deliver. The world will always give you an opinion. And if your brains are not rooted in the Word, you will not be. Sober and self-controlled, but wishy-washy the way everyone else in this world is. So he says, don't spend your time living in the passions. In verse 2 of this chapter, in in the passions, the drunkenness of your flesh. We may not go to drinking parties, 
But we are bombarded every single day by the temptations that this world will give us. Be self-controlled. The literal reading of this is, Be sober-minded and watchful unto prayer. These words were very familiar to Peter. Right before Jesus' life was coming to a close, in the garden, he said, Be watchful and pray, lest you fall into temptation. So be watchful, church. Be sober-minded. Don't get drunk on the world's teachings. The call to live watchfully is now followed by the call to serve fervently. And that's my next point, verses 8 through 10. Above all, keep loving one another since earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as, God's stu- as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Peter says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Or, I like the way uh, J.B. Phillips puts it in his translation. Above everything else, be sure that you have a real deep love for each other, remembering how love can cover a multitude of sins. That doesn't mean that when someone sins against you, that you overlook it and condone their sin. That doesn't mean that every time someone sins against us, that our love for them is going to clear them before God because that's what Jesus' love did for us. We can't do that for anyone else. But what I do think that it means is this, that fervent love, their fervent love, will not keep a record of the wrongs that they may have experienced. They're not keeping score. They're not keeping track. The basis for how they were to love one another should have been grounded in the Lord's love towards them. And so in the same way that verse 7 is to underpin the waiting and watchful attitude that they ought to have as the day drew near, so verse 8 served to underpin their affections for one another. And so this isn't just moralistic teaching. We didn't get together just to have a nice time and say, good job, and good job, and I love you, and this, and that, and that, without any foundation. This is the gospel, church. This is the gospel. And this is what separates Christianity from every other religion. God is the moral lawgiver. God loved us first. God gave his son for us. God gives us things. We don't subtract God out of the equation and love earnestly. God loved us first and forgave us in Christ. When Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling, the ESV study Bible makes a note that during those times, if you were a believer and you were traveling from city to city, you had to find shelter. You had to find a place to stay. You weren't just going to stay anywhere. You wanted to see if there, was, there, there were believers around. 
And maybe the reason why Peter wrote, wrote this was because some people took advantage of that, staying three, four, five, six, seven days. You have those guests that stay way too long and you want to be nice and love one another fervently. And you're like, please get out. If they received a gift from the Lord and were not using it to serve one another, if they were grumbling, then it may just be that they had forgotten the Lord's generosity towards them. The Lord never went to the cross grumbling on our behalf. He wasn't crucified saying, I can't believe David messed up again. I, 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 just, I don't want to do this. He didn't grumble at all. But Hebrews says that he went willingly to the cross. The Bible says that Jesus went willingly. He gave his life because he loved us. So when Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling, do you not think that that Peter saw Jesus displaying that over and over and over again? Peter turns away and says, I don't know him. Right there was an opportunity for Jesus to grumble. Peter, you rejected me. After all this time, Jesus never grumbled. The call to serve fervently is a call to love one another fervently without grumbling, to show a hospitality And as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. And if we don't, by implication, this text says that we are bad stewards. The gifts that we received, whether it's singing or setting up the sound or printing papers, if we're really good at printing papers and we're using it to serve one another, we're good stewards. But if we don't do it with Jesus at the center of our lives and the reason why we're doing that then by implication, we are bad stewards. There is a way to go ahead and serve one another that is sinful. Be a good steward, Peter says. You didn't get the gift on your own. You didn't originate it. We're not originators. We didn't come up with the gift. God gave us the gift. So he says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. So if I'm speaking right now, which I am, obviously. If I'm preaching, if you preach. If you share the gospel with your friends and family and your co-workers. And you love the Lord. Be sure that you're doing it with an intention to honor Jesus' name. You're speaking the very words of God. Handle it with care. The gifts that God has equipped you with are really imperfect reflections of God's perfect and flawless character. So, if you are an administrator, if you are a singer, God is a perfect and flawless administrator. God is a perfect and flawless singer. Have you ever thought about what that would sound like? 
God singing perfectly, never being flat, never being sharp, never missing the note or the beat? Have you ever thought that God is a perfect administrator, never forgetting an appointment, but always showing up right on time? If you have those gifts, just know that you are an imperfect reflection of the God whose flawless character has been displayed in those gifts. So if I'm to serve, I serve with the understanding that it is God who gives me the strength. I don't come up with the strength on my own. I don't do 50 push-ups in order to come up here and preach and say, I can do this, I can do this. There is no way that I can do it and honor the Lord. Some of you might leave today and just say, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. I just cook and I wash dishes. I show up to work. I put gas in the car. I'm good at that. I don't know what my spiritual gift is. Therefore, I'm just going to check out. Leave it to the people that are preaching. Leave it to the people that are worshiping and setting up and doing all those things. If that's you this morning, I don't want you to walk away thinking that way because that is not what Peter is saying. I'm, t- <laughs> I'm tempted to go to Paul because Paul says, in everything that you do, whether you eat or drink, that includes Starbucks, that includes your drinking water, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God in Christ. There's no way that your heart can beat unless Jesus gave you the ability to do that. There's no way that you can serve unless God gives you the strength. I don't know how I can help you this morning in discerning what your gifts are. But at the end of the service, as you're leaving, and as you're, as you're shaking hands and having conversation with people, as you're looking them in the eye, eye to eye, ask the Lord, I don't know what my spiritual gift, Lord. I don't know what it is. But give me ears to hear and eyes to see how I can serve my brother, my sister, fervently and earnestly, because I don't really love them earnestly and fervently right now. Ask the Lord, and the Lord will respond. He says, do this in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Now, right here in the text, I would have expected Peter to say that in everything, God may be glorified through us. But he doesn't say that. He says through Jesus Christ. And that brings me to our last point, the call to live worshipfully. Right now, Peter directs the attention of his hearers, not to themselves, because they didn't originate with their own gifts, but he directs them straight to the Lord Jesus again. This is not just another nod, tipping of the hat over to Jesus and saying, I approve your work, Jesus. This is Peter worshipfully describing what already belongs to Jesus. Praise, 
or where we get the word doxology from, we sang it this morning, we did it this morning, we're doing it right now as we hear and as I preach. Praise belongs to Jesus and dominion. Two things. There's absolutely no one in the world that deserves praise the way Jesus deserves praise, church. I don't care if you've mapped out the entire human brain or DNA or split the atom. You don't deserve praise the way Jesus deserves praise. Because he made the atoms. He made the DNA. He made the world. And that's the kind of God that we serve. That is the kind of God that we serve who literally deserves all praise and outranks every highest official in the world. If you think you're somebody, David, if you think that you're somebody standing up here preaching, you are nothing by far in comparison to Jesus. Jesus outranks us. And he deserves the praise. And that is where Peter's eyes are going again and again and again throughout this entire letter. And dominion. What is he over? What is his? What dominion does Jesus have? Does he own real estate in South Beach? Is Jesus checking out in the keys this morning? Because he has a nice condo. No. Everything is his, and it belongs to him. And so Peter exposes the very heart of his thinking as he reminds his believers what it means to lead worshipful lives. The call to live watchfully, he's coming again. The call to serve one another fervently because he loved us and served us. The call to live worshipfully. Jesus entrusted himself to the Father over and over again. And his life was the most worshipful life. He left us an example that we should follow. This is a call to life together as a church. Church. Palm Vista, this morning, in conclusion, we're to do this in the strength that God provides. If we have a potluck, and we set up, it's in the strength that God supplies. If you're in high school and you're writing and drawing for class, it's in the strength that God supplies. Your life should be lived that way. So my question, as we close, is how will you respond? How will you respond? Maybe we've been hurt far too many times for us to open up ourselves again to the church and say, that guy just hurt me. I'm not going to do that. I can serve fervently in my own living room listening to a video on YouTube and worshiping God there. That is not the call to life together, church. When people sinned against Jesus, he didn't withdraw and say, you know what, I'm done with you. If that's you this morning, I am pleading with you to remember that just as Jesus loved us, love one another, serve one another, live watchfully. Bonhoeffer, who I mentioned and off of 
whom this sermon is based off of, says in his book, in the, actually in the opening chapters of Life Together, he says this, between the death of Christ and the last day, it is only by gracious anticipation of the last things that Christians are privileged to live in visible fellowship. That's you and me, guys. Like, I can see you. Invisible fellowship with other Christians. It is by the grace of God that a congregation is permitted to gather visibly in this church, in this world, to share God's word and sacrament. We have air conditioning. We have nice clothes. We have a car. And it's by God's grace that you are here. And I just want to say, as we close, to the one who belongs glory and dominion forever, that it is a privilege to be a part of God's church with you, Palm Vista. Think about that when you leave this morning. It's a privilege to see you. God bought you. Your life is not your own. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. You purchased us out of the slave market of sin and Satan. What a privilege it is to serve. What a privilege it is to be part of your church, the church that you promised to build. Father, I pray that this morning as we leave, that we would consider how we can stir one another up to good works and to loving you, to live watchfully, to serve fervently, and to live worshipful lives, even if we are pumping the gas in our car. Help us, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.